Hello and welcome to Moderate Party, a political podcast for moderates, centrists, and independents. I'm your host, Hillary Lombard. It has been a month since Russia invaded Ukraine. Since then, we've seen the world change. Analysts and experts thought that Ukraine would fall in a matter of days. Putin thought that the Ukrainian people could be conquered, that he'd be greeted as a liberator, that a government led by a comedian could easily be toppled. He thought that the West would fail to match our rhetoric with our actions. But none of these things have come to pass. As it stands now, Ukraine has fought like hell. Not only are they still standing, but now reporting suggests that they're actually pushing Russia back in some areas. And while that's cause for hope, the picture elsewhere is quite bleak. Mariupol, a city that has felt the brutality of the war more than most, continues to be under siege and bombarded by Russian artillery. Civilians are being massacred. It's awful. A lot of the coverage that I've seen is centered around what's happening right now, which makes sense. The war's unfolding before our eyes in real time. But the conversation that I'm not hearing, the one that I want to have, is about how this ends and what happens when it does. Michael Kimmage is a professor of history and department chair at the Catholic University of America. He's also a fellow at the German Marshall Fund. And he worked in the U.S. State Department on the Secretary's policy planning staff, where he held the Russia-Ukraine portfolio. Most recently, he's published three pieces in Foreign Affairs, what if Russia wins, what if Russia loses, and what if Russia makes a deal. As always, if you have thoughts, comments, suggestions about this episode, future episodes, past episodes, whatever, email me at talk at moderatepartypodcast.com. All right, let's get started. So I want to start out with the Cold War, which is the last time that things were this tense between the U.S. and Russia. In your article, What If Russia Wins, you said that comparing our current situation to the Cold War is not really an apt comparison. Can you explain that? Well, uh, you know, I think that um, you want to start with uh, the Cold War in Europe and the way that the Cold War worked uh, in Europe. And certainly it was tense. Um, there were lots of moments of crisis. Uh, it was a huge strategic challenge for the U.S., but... One thing that you can see when you look back on the Cold War is that there were certain basic rules uh, and there was the Iron Curtain. There was a clear division between East and West. And although that was challenged and qualified at times, it was never uh, fundamentally challenged. Uh, and you didn't have war in Europe from 1945 to 1991. So tension and contest and competition for sure, uh, but nothing resembling war. Now we have something that we really have never had in the nuclear age. We have a direct military conflict between uh, Ukraine uh, and Russia, uh, and Ukraine is supported by the US and uh, a large number of NATO member states, not that these are countries directly involved in the conflict, at least not so far, uh, but it's an active, uncertain, developing conflict. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's um, combustible uh, in a way that the conflicts of the Cold War never were. So it's just much more difficult to predict, much more difficult to manage, much more difficult to control. Um, it's hot, if you will. Uh, so do you view the Cold War and our current situation as the continuation of one conflict with Russia, or do you view them as two separate things? I think it's separate. I think the Soviet Union was a very different uh, construction. Uh, in certain ways, it was a lot more powerful. Uh, mm -hmm. It was larger, had more economic power, had more military power. You know, the nuclear power is comparable and, um, and, and sort of similar from the Soviet Union uh, to today's Russia. 
but uh, you know, Russia is also um, Putin's Russia for all the ways in which it's repressive. And I think he's overstepped in this war and he's gonna make himself vulnerable. But Putin's Russia is also a lot, much more solid and coherent political entity than the Soviet Union uh, ever was. So it's smaller, it has a bit less capacity, but I think it's less likely to collapse than the Soviet Union was. So it's just a different uh, structure altogether. I think that that's really interesting because one unpopular thing to admit, I think, is that Putin, as a leader in a lot of ways, has been very successful. Like he has improved conditions in Russia in a lot of ways. And I don't think that that is equal to all of the ways that he has harmed it. But I think that he's not the type of leader from the Soviet Union. Would you agree? I mean, I think that it cuts two, two ways. I think that what Putin, I mean, at least in the last couple of weeks has shown is that he's a lot more reckless than any Soviet leader I can yeah. think of with the possible exception of Khrushchev who got himself tangled up in the Cuban Missile Crisis and that was involved in his, eventually in his dismissal. But the Soviet leaders, you know, were aggressive and they were hardliners for sure. Uh, but I'm not sure any of them took on the risk that Putin has just taken on with this, uh, with this war. We'll see how it plays out, of course. It's sort of too early to say, but uh, I wouldn't be surprised if Putin in some dramatic fashion, just undermines himself with this, uh, with this war. It's very important in the spirit of your question to understand what success might look like in Russian eyes with Putin, to understand the nature of his popularity. And that's not uh, completely artificial, it's, it's real. The first few years of his presidency, you see from 2000 to 2008 or so, rising living standards, you know, lots of oil and gas exports, the money was, was flowing in and Putin did bring compared to the 1990s, a kind of stability uh, to Russia. Uh, on the other hand, you know, since 2014 and since this period of confrontation uh, with the West, um, that has resulted in decreased living standards for Russia, you know, sort of diminishing middle class. And of course, the sanctions that have been put on Russia in the last couple of weeks are likely to be devastating economically for, uh, for Russia. And it is clearly the case that Putin is responsible for those uh, sanctions. So we can put to the side the question of you know, the humanitarian record of Russia and Ukraine, which is probably going to be among the most lasting parts of Putin's legacy, at least for non-Russians uh, and people observing the conflict. But we can put that to the side and see that in certain areas, uh, exactly as you say, Putin has had uh, successes. I think up until this war, uh, you know, he did annex Crimea, he moved into Syria, um, he made certain military gains, you could say, for the, uh, for the country, and that too has contributed to his uh, to his popularity. So it's a very mixed portrait, but it is possible for a certain kind of Russian to say that Putin is a strong leader and has perhaps up until this moment been, been fairly effective. I think a lot of the commentary on Putin is kind of divided into two buckets. One being that this is a complete shock, very surprising, not the Putin that we know. And then the other bucket being this is the obvious end point for a series of escalation. I'm curious which of those you think is a more apt analysis. I would go a little bit more uh, with the first one. Uh, it is of course the case that there's a lot of the Putin that we see today is a lot of that Putin is visible, uh, is visible earlier. Was he willing to use repression over the past 20 years? Certainly he was. I mean, he's been responsible uh, for the death of opponents and, and, and independent journalists and such. And that's been the case uh, for a long time. Has he been brutal on the battlefield? from the beginning, absolutely. In some ways, his presidency begins with the war on Chechnya, the continuing war on Chechnya, which, which Putin prosecuted uh, in a very, very brutal 
matter. And then, of course, you have the war in Syria in 2015. And let's not forget that the 2014 war uh, with Ukraine resulted in the loss of some 14,000 lives uh, for Ukrainians. So all of this is on the record before the current war uh, and points to a high degree of ruthlessness, uh, brutality, and willingness to, uh, to repress. So all of those things are relevant at the moment and help us understand who Putin is over a long arc of, of experience. But in my observation of him, this degree of risk, it's not that he's changed morally and somehow become worse than he was before, he is who he is, but the risk that he's undertaken with this current war is just a new level. And that's very interesting why he decided at the age of 69 to take on the riskiest venture, not just of his presidency, but of his uh, of his life. You might imagine a Putin aging and mellowing and sort of enjoying his wealth uh, and power and not taking on a war that really will change everything uh, and could change everything for the worse for, uh, for Russia itself. So that's a Putin who's unfamiliar to me. Uh, and we can speculate if that's aging or the pandemic or if it's his view of foreign policy or his take on the US and the outside world. There are many ways in which he may have changed his risk calculus, but that risk calculus, in my view, has changed quite considerably. Do you have any thoughts on why that would be? I mean, I know it's dangerous to speculate, but I think I would be remiss not to ask you. I think uh, two things. I think one way to look at Ukraine, if we can be very clinical about it, mm -hmm. is that the policy that Russia has pursued and pursuing since 2014 hasn't worked. So they annexed Crimea. That's something that's pretty popular in Russia. But then they moved into eastern Ukraine, the Donbass, and tried to use that as a lever of control over Ukraine to get what they want, uh, Ukraine that's either neutral or sort of under Russian uh, influence. And almost the exact opposite has happened since 2014. Ukraine has become more independent, more Western-oriented, more Europe-oriented. Europe it's built out a military relationship with the US and with other European uh, countries. So in a way, uh, you have a sort of dramatic policy failure. And one of the things that Putin is trying to do with the war is to reverse that. So mm -hmm. will he do it is another question. Is it irrational in his terms to try to solve a problem that for him has been unresolved for the last eight years? Um, not entirely. Uh, so, you know, that's one way in which he's changed. He's become frustrated with the status quo. It's not working for him. And he's taken a very big step uh, in hopes of changing that status quo. So that's one explanation for his behavior. I think another uh, is more psychological and it's not about the pandemic and it's not about him going uh, insane. Uh, is that over the course of 22 years, it's a long time for anybody to be in power, uh, and there are no checks and balances now in the Russian system, I think it's gone to his head. I think he's arrogant. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think it's full of hubris, the approach that he has. Uh, we've seen him in recent weeks dressing down his own national security staff. Yeah, no, it's, 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 it's a very bizarre television spectacle to do something uh, to do something like that. And I think he feels he, like he's gone from success to success. And he's made Russia stronger and stronger in his eyes. Uh, and this will just contribute to that, that this will be the next stage or the next chapter uh, in the in the narrative. And that's, you know, that's Putin's story, I suspect. It's the story of many people who are authoritarian rulers, who are dictators. Even in democratic systems, it's possible to be in power for a long time and feel like you can you can do anything and that the mm -hmm. world is going to bend to your to your will. And I think that would to me would be the other explanation. You didn't have that kind of self-confidence or arrogance 10 years ago, uh, but I think he has it now. I think that there's a weird contrast between the arrogance that you're describing and his narrative of grievance. He's definitely projecting all of this strength, but his words are saying, like, we've been so wronged. We've been taken advantage of. Um, can you just like from a historic perspective, walk us through the origins of this grievance? 
Sure. Uh, it's a key point and it's an excellent question about Putin, the arrogance and the swagger that he has on the one hand, the machismo and this resentful, you know, grievance and, and, and whining on the, uh, on the other side. I agree, it can, it can seem contradictory and, 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 and perhaps is in fact contradictory. It's not that unusual, again, with uh, dictators, those who have this kind of power, you often see a long legacy of, of, of grievance. It's one way in which they bond uh, with those elements of the population that uh, support them. You could look here, it's not a perfect analogy, but certainly to Hitler, who was another strong man who um, believed in his charisma and military force, but also spoke about all the ways in which Germany had been stabbed in the back and screwed over by other powers or by finance capital or by the Jews. Uh, Etc. You know, it's not identical to Putin, but it's uh, it's a comparison. Uh, it's a comparison you can make. So some of the grievances that Putin articulates are not just his. Uh, they are the grievances of the Russian foreign policy elite and to a degree of the Russian population. The sense that Russia was the loser when the Soviet Union collapsed. Uh, other countries achieved their independence. Russia did too in 1991, but it identified more with the Soviet Union and felt like it had been broken up. The strong sense uh, across Russian society that in the 1990s, the US took what it wanted from that part of the world. You know, security-wise, it moved NATO forward. Uh, it projected its style of, of economics and capitalism onto Russia uh, at the cost of the Russian people. Uh, and Russia was too weak to do anything uh, about it. And then you have the war in Kosovo and you have the Iraq war uh, and this view of the US sort of overstepping its bounds. Uh, and again, Russia isn't able to, to strike back or to assert its, uh, to assert its position. Uh, and so the narrative of grievance is there. That's the background to it of an arrogant and aggressive West that doesn't have Russia's best interests in mind. It is always pushing up against uh, what Russia wishes to be. Uh, and you can easily fold that narrative of grievance into another kind of narrative, which is the narrative of ascendance or resurgence. Mm. They're out to get us. They think that they're stronger. They think that they're better. Well, we're going to show them uh, exactly how strong we are, how assertive we are, how autonomous we are, how we can get what we want in the international uh, scene. Uh, and so it does work kind of hand in glove. The grievance, you know, gives a cause, gives a purpose, gives a reason uh, to these assertions of Russian power. And then Putin, you know, can put himself at the center of both of those narratives, the narrative of grievance, the narrative of Russian reawakening. And positioning himself as a strong alternative to that right as the only alternative to that you know mm. he's equated himself um with russia itself i am russia uh russia is putin uh etc again that's you know those standard speech in a way of strong men and uh, authoritarian figures that only they uh, can, can can meet the needs of the moment angela stent wrote um about the putin doctrine in foreign affairs and she summarized it by saying that the core element of his doctrine is getting the West to treat Russia as if it were the Soviet Union, a power to be respected and feared with special rights in its neighborhood of, and a voice in serious international matters. So if I'm, if I'm to take a straw man position and argue that, like, why not just let him have those things? Sure. Uh, well, I think if we were speaking in the abstract, um, you would have a very good uh, a very good point, uh, and your straw man would be would be an excellent argument if it's a matter of Russia feeling that it has a place in the world, a seat at the table, uh, that its uh, dignity is respected and uh, its interests are understood and taken into account. I think that there's really no argument against that in the abstract. You know, Russia is a large country; uh, it does have a difficult history. You know, there's a lot to piece together and think through in terms of what its place in the world is, and we want to understand Russia certainly in Russian terms and. 
accorded that degree of, uh, of, uh, of dignity. But there are two basic problems with sort of giving Russia what it wants uh, in response to what Angela Stent is describing uh, as its, uh, uh, as its uh, ambitions. Uh, and the first problem is that uh, to a degree, this was really the case up until 2014. Russia was brought into the World Trade Organization at the uh, behest of the United States. Russia has always been a member of the National Security Council at the uh, at the United Nations, first with the Soviet Union, and then Russia got its its seat in the National Security Council uh, uh, of, of 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 the UN. Uh, you know, Russia was made a member of the G8. It was the part of the club of of, of super rich countries that uh, you know had these periodic meetings and you know sort of set the tone in some ways for. Uh, for international affairs. So, you know, it's not that Russia wasn't invited into some clubs, not to every club, but it wasn't, uh, it's not that it wasn't invited into some clubs and that's an important part of the record. You know, Russia was then kicked out of the G8 and, you know, there have been responses more recently that have changed that dynamic, but that dynamic was real, especially in the 1990s and, and say the first eight years of Putin's presidency from 2000 uh, to 2008. But the other and more acutely important issue is not just what Russia wants, but what, how we are to understand Russia's neighborhood. Uh, and so if Russia understands its place in the world and its dignity as controlling the territory of Ukraine and carving it up on the one hand, annexing Crimea, or just asserting itself and determining Ukraine's future, is that a legitimate aspiration? Is that something that's worth accepting? And then the problem is if you accept that in Ukraine, because you could say Ukraine is in between, it has historic ties to Russia, it's part of Russia's uh, sort of security zone, well, then if Russia is able to assert its control over Ukraine in some form or fashion, then what next? Then perhaps it will assert its control over Georgia. Uh, to a degree, it does assert a control uh, over Armenia and this almost complete Russian control now over, uh, over Belarus. So it's not that this isn't happening, but the degree to which you allow that to happen, uh, that's a very important question. That will set precedence. Uh, and I think from the U.S. position, you know, formal U.S. foreign policy, that this is just the wrong way to approach Europe. We cannot make Europe a part of these overlapping spheres of influence. We have to grant the smaller uh, and weaker countries uh, in terms of economy and national defense. We have to let those uh, countries have as much autonomy and independence as everybody else has. That's the American position. Uh, and that's the counter argument to this, to this claim that we should simply give Russia what it wants. I think it's a tricky one because I think that we are actively watching the friction between our values and our policies. And I think it's tough because if you were to ask me, like, do I think that democracy should be defended? Absolutely. Do I think that we are the largest military power in the world and have an obligation to stand up to bullies? Absolutely. Do I want to be nuked by Russia? No, I do not. Um, what role do you think that values should play in our policy? And what do you think about the friction between those two things? Yeah, no, it's a really good question. When it comes to Russia itself, I think we should be much more understated than we've been. Um, mm. Yes, from an American point of view, it would be great if Russia became a democracy. That would be a good outcome. Uh, but <clears throat> it's not really the, the role of the U.S. To, to make that happen, I would say. Many people in Washington, I know, would disagree with that point of view. But uh, I think we should really let the, that question be up to, uh, to Russians. Uh, and we can have a preference, but we should, uh, you know, we shouldn't be too directly involved. And we've probably overstepped quite a few lines when it comes to democracy promotion uh, in uh, in Russia itself. When it comes to Ukraine, to me, the story is 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 very different. This is a country that has made a choice, uh, and there is a commitment there to 
uh, to democracy. That's very worth supporting on the part of the U.S. That's a real flourishing uh, good partnership. I mean, at the moment, Ukraine is fighting for its life, and there's every reason to support Ukraine uh, in that uh, in that endeavor. But you know, when it comes to Ukraine, I don't think the question is all that complicated. But you're entirely right. There is another framework for all of these questions. Uh, and at the same time that it's a general U.S. interest, or it has been historically, to see democracy spread and to promote democracy, we need to be equally concerned and equally committed to regional stability. Whatever that means at the moment in the midst of a war, it's very hard to think of what regional stability is, but still we can't forget how important that is. And probably if you had to articulate the most important U.S. interest in that region, it would be avoiding a nuclear conflict. Now, it's not effortless to figure out how to do that. Uh, it doesn't explain itself once you make that commitment, but you're entirely right. Sort of like the scales of justice. On the one hand, you have values, democracy, a kind of uh, idealistic vision of the future to the, to, to, to the degree that makes sense for the, for the region. On the other hand, you have stability uh, and managing conflict and avoiding an escalation that could lead us down a, a very, very dangerous road. So it's up to policymakers to to balance those two uh, agendas and to explain why it's necessary to balance those two agendas. I think that it's further compounded by the fact that historically we failed to deter Putin, at least in recent history. Our Russian reset failed. Our strongly worded statements failed. Our condemnations failed. Stay out of Syria failed. We stay out of our elections failed. Um, I think that that further complicates how we can negotiate for regional stability. Why do you think that we continue to fail at deterring Putin? That's an excellent question. And one that's too, too rarely being posed at the present moment. You see the, you know, at times the White House has been spiking the football in the last couple of weeks about its use of intelligence and provision of military aid to Ukraine. But this question is an awkward one. Uh, for the Biden administration, for the Trump administration, and for the Obama administration, exactly as your question suggests, there's a failure of deterrence that runs like a thread uh, back through these back through these three presidential uh, administrations. Um, I don't have a perfect answer. I'll do my best with the question. I think that one reason that we have failed to deter Russia is that we consistently underestimate it, mm -hmm. and so there was the assumption in 2014 that the sanctions we promoted then would be enough that we'll get Russians to the table, we'll get Russians out of Crimea, we'll get Russians out of Eastern Ukraine. That was pretty unrealistic in, in, in retrospect. It just wasn't enough for a country of Russia's size. Russia managed to adjust to the sanctions to sort of overcome them. Uh, and, uh, you know, that uh, was just too little uh, for the objectives that were stated, uh, that were stated for Russia. Sometimes deterrence is a complicated thing, um, you know, in terms of stated aims, uh, and actual aims, I think it was pretty clear that Obama and Trump never wanted to get involved militarily in Ukraine. So they had to live with that. If you're not going to get involved militarily, you sort of cut off a lot of the deterrent tools uh, that you have. And so the problem there maybe wasn't exactly deterrence, but that your words are much more ambitious, much bolder than your actions. Uh, and Russia has been very clever at taking advantage of any disparity, any you know, sort of space between words uh, and actions. And of course, Syria is a very good uh, example as well. Um, really no action was taken to stop the Russian military move uh, into Syria. And again, you had this rhetoric, Assad must go, it will be a quagmire for Russia, Russia should sort of move out, and the rhetoric wasn't going to, uh, to move things enough. And the threat of sanctions coming up to more recent times, the threat of sanctions was made consistently before the war that began on February 24th. The threat of sanctions obviously wasn't sufficient to deter 
food system. So we underestimate, uh, we uh, overpromise. Uh, we haven't done a good job in the past of sort of calibrating what exactly we want to accomplish in terms of deterrence with Russia and how we intend uh, to accomplish it. Perhaps that's coming a little bit more into balance at the moment as the sanctions really kick up and you know, the US is, is supporting Ukraine militarily in a way that it's never supported any country that's directly in conflict uh, with Russia. So some of the moves that are being made now are sort of more uh, are more bold, but I wonder if they're gonna have that deterrent effect given this, this track record. It's really probably one of the most crucial questions to ask at the moment, this question of deterrence and why the record is as bad as it is. Well, and I think especially when in a lot of ways, it doesn't look like there's a path down for Putin. So it's like, if we are putting effort into deterrence, like how do you deter somebody that refuses to be deterred? Um, well, and, and the other really hard question, going back to something you said earlier, is how do you deter a nuclear power? That uh, is a question to which we don't have a good uh, a good answer. When a nuclear power really makes a decision to do something, this would be as true of the United States as it is of Russia. You know, if you want to push against that uh, that action, the stakes are very high, uh, mm -hmm. and of course Putin knows that, and so he takes somewhat calculated risks and tries to keep it under the threshold of American reaction. Uh, and the U.S. Uh, you know at times spins its wheels and really not liking what Russia is doing, but also not wishing to go down that escalatory spiral for very good reasons. Mm -hmm. It's not uh, folly to be worried about escalation. It's not foolish. It's it's uh, it's prudent. It's uh, it's necessary. But then, if you're not going to directly escalate against Russia, what are you going to do to get them to stop doing what you wish them to stop doing? It's a theoretical problem, and I think we haven't come up with a solution yet. Well, I think it's not so theoretical right now because I think like. I mean, it's almost like we I think a lot of the times it feels that we do not have a choice except to escalate, because I think the narrative is framed around this idea that we are the only ones capable of escalating. And it's like, oh, the U.S. needs to tiptoe around this issue. And it's like Putin invaded Ukraine, which I think is escalating the conflict between us and Russia. I think that makes him hard to negotiate with. That's absolutely true. Uh, and uh, there's no reason to trust Putin. We see what he's capable of uh, in Ukraine, which is more or less everything in terms of uh, the humanitarian humanitarian catastrophe uh, of that war. Uh, so as we've already established, he's a man who's capable of brutality. He's capable of great ruthlessness. Uh, and I don't think his word means much. So yes, those are all the obstacles, the big obstacles uh, to any kind of diplomatic settlement. But I can't think of any other way that this war will end other than in a negotiated peace, because Russia is not going to get everything it wants. It's doing a pretty bad job militarily on the ground uh, in Ukraine. It's set for itself impossible uh, political objectives uh, with this war. Uh, it doesn't seem to have the military wherewithal to get to those objectives. And Ukraine is not going to get everything it wants. It's not going to be able to push Russia out militarily, not on its own. Uh, that's not a viable option. So if neither side can get what they want, I guess they could go on fighting for the next 20 years and incur all of the costs in the loss of life and, 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 and property and, uh, uh, and peace of mind, you could, you could go on doing that for 20 years or you could come to the table. And I think at some point they're gonna have to, they're gonna have to do that. But uh, I doubt it will be the US brokering the deal or the US making the deal on its terms. It's just not uh, there. Uh, the, the capacity on the part of the US is not there to get Russia to yield uh, and to make those kinds of concessions. Russia will have to yield when Putin feels that the war is just so unpromising, so unrewarding uh, that he needs to change gears. But that could be two, three years from now.
before I swing at that, I just want to circle back to something. You said that we frequently, um, our words are more ambitious than our actions. Do you think that Biden is repeating that or do you think that he's broken from that? I think Biden has been quite good on this account. I think that he, as a candidate, you know, made certain bold statements about Putin. He called him a thug uh, and, you know, I think was just speaking his mind. Uh, and then more recently, a couple of days ago, Biden called Putin a war criminal, which which I agree with, mm-hmm. um, but uh, was maybe a, a rare example on the part of, uh, of Biden for of, of verbal indiscipline, in, in, lack of discipline in this case. Uh, Biden can can kind of kind of speak off the cuff um, uh, on many issues and get himself in trouble, but he hasn't done so for the most part uh, with uh, with Russia. I thought the messaging in the first six months of the Biden administration was was reasonable. Uh, when it came to Putin, looking for stability, looking for guardrails, it didn't come to pass, but it was not uh, uh, an unreasonable approach for the Biden administration. And I think Biden in the last two months has been more than good. I think he's been superb in not uh, getting the words uh, out ahead of the realities. He has consistently said the United States will not send troops uh, to Ukraine. He has said that this is not a battle between NATO uh, and uh, and Russia. That's the right message. That's that's one way of preventing this this, this conflict from escalating uh, uncontrollably. Uh, he has you know, used intelligence quite wisely uh, in the last two months. It's been, I think, very difficult for Putin to, uh, to deal with that. Biden happened to, get it, Biden happened to get it right when he came to the war. You know, he predicted it. He said it was mm-hmm. gonna happen. Uh, he, he made those statements. It looked a little bit crazy to me when he did make those statements and the war didn't seem to be uh, breaking out. But you know, I think uh, hindsight, uh, makes those uh, statements of Biden look, uh, you know, sort of smart uh, and, uh, and effective. So I think that he's been, I think he's been good. Uh, you know, he hasn't really articulated what the eventual U.S. goal is in this conflict. Yeah. Maybe because he himself doesn't know. Uh, we're all trying to figure it out. It's a one-month-old war, three and a half weeks old. It's a, come as a big shock uh, to many observers in Russia, in Europe, in the, uh, in the U.S., so I can have empathy for him, not quite knowing where it ends. But at a certain point, you do want to see an American president say, "This is the this is the direction. This is where we're going to try to settle things," uh, and that is maybe the next step. But he has not been reckless with his words. I can't say that. So, on the topic of how it ends, um, the way that you originally came onto my radar is your first uh, piece in Foreign Affairs about what if Russia wins, and then right after, I found your article, "What if Russia loses." And what struck me about these, like reading these two pieces is how similar the outcome is, because in both of them, we end up with a fundamentally changed Europe, a near permanent NATO deployment, the U.S. shifting its policy back into Europe and away from China, no clean victory, no simple defeat and a near constant state of economic war. So my question is, are these outcomes already predetermined? That's really, uh, it didn't occur to me that question. That's really a helpful way of framing those pieces. And I'll, I'll advertise for one that will come out tomorrow in Foreign Affairs with the title of What If Russia Yields? Uh, so we keep on going with this. It's a uh, saga. Yes, yes. The what if books or the what if questions about, uh, uh, about this conflict. But uh, it's really a very helpful way of thinking about, uh, about what will happen. All, all three cases, really, Russia's loss, Russia's victory, uh, and Russia coming to the table uh, and, uh, and yielding. The result that I don't foresee although it's not totally impossible, the result I don't foresee is Russia being transformed uh, by this war uh, into a pro-American, pro-European democracy uh, that 
as Germany did after the Second World War, will atone for the many terrible things that it's doing in Ukraine uh, and will bring a peaceful resolution to the conflict through sincerity, through you know, a kind of moral uh, change uh, and through agreement that the political system and the order in Europe and the United States is better than its own political system. I just don't see that happening. It would be wonderful if it did, uh, but uh, that to me is the least likely uh, outcome. So if that doesn't happen, what do you have in all three scenarios? Russia yielding, Russia losing, Russia winning, is that Russia will still be a nuclear power. It will still have the biggest conventional military uh, in Europe. Uh, and it will still have some basic set of interests that equal a desire to influence or control its neighbors. So we can't remove that from the equation. We can't get rid of that. We can perhaps through diplomacy, this is the case, maybe if Russia does yield, maybe we can mitigate some of that. We can sort of tamp down the most acute tensions. We can prevent the escalation. We can sort of accept that Russia is very problematic, is very difficult, but on some level we can live with it. And that's kind of how it was during the Cold War. You know, Russia dominated a lot of Eastern Europe. We didn't like it, uh, but we lived with it. Uh, and there were ways of managing that conflict that prevented it from spiraling uh, out of control. That's not unrealistic. It's not attractive, but it's not uh, unrealistic. If Russia really loses in Ukraine, uh, I do worry greatly about the kind of grievances uh, that will drive Russian foreign policy. So it will still have a lot of its, its instruments, its tools, its military tools. Uh, but they will be fueled by a new kind of anger, whether it's Putin's anger or some figure from the intelligence service or from the military who replaces, uh, who replaces Putin. So that's, you know, war by other means, right? that the war continues after the war is lost uh, because one of the parties is still aggrieved. You might think about Germany after World War I. It mm-hmm. lost the war, but uh, it ended up making a lot of those grievances and that led to World War II. And then, of course, if Russia wins, whatever that might mean, probably the partition of the country, what we're going to have is a terribly dangerous border, fluid, uncertain border between whatever this Russian unit is in Ukraine, whatever it calls it, a colony, or maybe they'll make it a part of Russia, uh, and the surrounding area, which is going to be fueled by uh, American military involvement, military involvement of NATO, uh, is going to be a a sort of demilitarized zone in between the West and Russia that will resemble North Korea and South Korea, which is a conflict that has lasted for decades and has been very costly for uh, for both sides. So those are my three pessimistic scenarios for this, this war. I wish I could pull some optimism out of it, but you're right, they're all sort of structurally kind of similar. So then in that way, do you think that the world has changed? Indeed, uh, it has. Uh, uh, we will work through the enormous economic fallout of this war over time. You're gonna to start to see it. I think we will are already starting to see it with inflation and higher energy costs within uh, the United States. Uh, other parts of the world are gonna wrestle with the fallout from decreased Ukrainian and Russian grain production, uh, which may sound like a modest point, but for many countries, Egypt and others, they depend on, uh, on and countries in Africa depend on this, this, this grain production for uh, for low food costs. And that uh, is another you know, sort of enormous uh, economic consequence uh, of, this, of this crisis. What we are witnessing also, to take a step back in terms of economics, is the deglobalization of the world. That's one of the results of the sanctions, that we are going to, I think, succeed in isolating Russia from the global economy in many ways, especially if you get to boycotts of Russian gas and oil. And that will perhaps be good in terms of our general ambitions with Ukraine, but it's going to be really bad for the economy the sense that the economy is going to, the global economy is going to shrink. It's going to be a place of walls and barriers, uh, much more so than it was 
in the past, and that will make us all in some ways uh, poorer, give fewer opportunities to, to all of us. So that's the economics, but maybe more to the point is the, the new military dynamic, uh, that Europe is not at peace. You know, it, it was for, for really quite a long time. There were uh, issues in former Yugoslavia and, you know, there has been the Russian invasion of Ukraine in 2014 and Russia invaded Georgia in 2008. So it's not been a perfectly peaceful record, but the kind of war that we're looking at now or kind of sustained period of, of military tension is going to be new uh, and it's going to destabilize Europe. Uh, and we are going to have to live, you know, people often ask me, is this the Cuban Missile Crisis? And I think it is, but the difference is that the Cuban Missile Crisis was 10 or 12 days. Every day for us is gonna be a Cuban Missile Crisis. We're gonna to have to live with that instability uh, and insecurity. And that will have an effect on our culture and our psychology, sort of our, 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 our cast of mind. And that will be perhaps one of the most profound shifts that comes from this, uh, this war. It's making the world acutely, acutely less safe and secure. And that's really rather remarkable to watch in real time. And I think it also ushers us into a new era of great power competition. Um, it's one of the other things that I want to talk about for the remainder of our conversation. Um, but I want to talk about it in the context of what happens if democracy loses. Because I think that, you know, you see the, the narrative surrounding like Ukraine is the front line for democracy. And Freedom House, who studies the health of democracies across the globe, has said that democracy has been in decline since 2006. And now the number of countries who've had their rights restricted is at the highest that it's been since they started studying it. Meanwhile, we have a serious increase in authoritarian power in China, Russia, Iran, Belarus, the Philippines. Why do you think that we're seeing authoritarian gains and democratic decline? I don't know what the answer is exactly up until the beginning of this, uh, of this war. Um, you know, I think that there was and has always been a sense that authoritarian leaders, authoritarian leaders can deliver the goods. Um, you know, they centralize things, they provide certain kinds of efficiency. Um, when it comes to military affairs, there are perhaps advantages to having a very, you know, sort of powerful pyramid uh, of power in a country because you can marshal resources and you can act quickly uh, and, you know, you can do certain things. That was one of the storylines with Putin uh, up until this war that he was an effective military leader in part because he had such absolute control over his military and over his, uh, over his society and democracies. I think we all know the story very well from living in one. Uh, they're unruly, uh, they're chaotic. Uh, they often find themselves at, at cross purposes. What democracies do, I think this is ultimately a strength of democracies, but it can feel like a weakness in the short term. What democracies do is that they reveal their problems. Mm -hmm. They do so through a free press and they do so through democratic debate and discussion. And so we are all, the world is immersed in the problems of the United States, whether these are problems of race or problems of inequality or, you know, the cultural conflicts, it's, it's all on display. And at times it's fascinating, at times it's funny, at times it's appalling, uh, but it can be pretty depressing, you know, to watch these problems unfold and unfold and unfold. Does China have fewer problems? Does Russia have fewer problems? Absolutely not. Do they do a lot more to cover up those problems? Uh, for sure. So, you know, that's an issue with democracies, and that perhaps has been a, a part of the story of democratic decline uh, up until the war. I'm not sure that the war is going to be a great victory for authoritarian governments or for uh, dictatorship as such. It's not my initial reading of it. I hope I'm not engaging here uh, in wishful thinking. I think Putin has revealed over the last couple of weeks the dangers uh, of dictatorial rule. Uh, you know, you have the tanking of the Russian economy, you have the flight of educated Russians, apparently 50,000 who have left 
uh, in the last uh, couple of weeks. You have the utter humanitarian catastrophe of this war, which is a war waged by neighbor upon neighbor. Uh, Ukraine is a country in which tens of millions of Russians have relatives. Uh, they speak a similar language. At times they speak the same language. Many share the same, uh, the same religion. To wage a war of this kind on a neighbor in this way uh, is just uh, you know, sort of unthinkably catastrophic. I'm not thinking here of, of Ukraine. It's of course catastrophic for Ukraine, uh, but it's catastrophic for Russia too. And it's a war in which Russians don't have a vote. Mm-hmm. They didn't really choose it. I suspect if they did have a vote, they would have voted uh, against it. So is this the achievement of, of dictatorial rule or is this uh, you know, the price, the peril, uh, the danger of dictatorial rule? And to me, mm-hmm. I feel it's just much more uh, it's much more the latter. Will China look at this war and say, you know, sort of onward march, uh, our fellow authoritarian governments? I think they would like to say that, you know, that's what their propaganda is suggesting. I don't think they believe it. I think that they think this war is much too destabilizing uh, and radical for China's good. Uh, is that going to push China onto the side of the democracies? No, but uh, it may make them rethink some of their commitments to countries like Russia. But I'm not even concerned that much with governments here. I just, I'm very interested to see how the people, the sort of global, you know, um, the global community, uh, such as it is, uh, how it responds to this war. Uh, and you just look at the contrast between Zelensky and Putin. And, mm-hmm. you know, maybe people overdo the heroism of Zelensky and, uh, uh, you know, overdo the villainy of Putin. Uh, that's possible, I suppose. Uh, but Zelensky is, you know, a real human being. Uh, and he has empathy for uh, his country. Uh, he's, you know, under enormous duress. He's showing real courage. Uh, there's just a kind of human decency that one sees in Zelensky and Putin seems aloof, uh, very separated from his population, uh, holed up in his, uh, in his castle. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's something in there, in, in, in those images, there's something that is, is being communicated, I think, about democracy uh, and authoritarian rule. But, you know, it's early days, and, and, and that may be a little bit of an optimistic uh, reading of the, of, of the war, but that's, that's where my, my thinking goes at the, at the very moment. Do you think that what we're seeing unfold is indicative of a decline in U.S. power? I'm not sure. Uh, you know, I think uh, Putin's decision to attack Ukraine probably reflects his opinion, his view, mm-hmm. that the U.S. is not just not just its power is in decline, but the country itself uh, is in decline. This is a steady theme of Putin's speeches. I think that he does believe it. Uh, it's certainly a kind of Russian talking point, at times a propaganda point, uh, and decline is, is broadly understood. Uh, you have Afghanistan, you have Iraq, you have wars in which the US doesn't seem to be able to get what it wants or to accomplish what it wants. You have January 6th and internal divisions in, in, in American life. You know, Putin says about democracies that they can't make up their mind, they sort of change. And, you would have proof of that with JCPOA, the Iran deal. One yeah. administration makes it, the other administration undoes it. Uh, and I think Putin sees in that a kind of real weakness. And you could add to that Putin's cultural conservatism. He sees the LG, LGBTQ and, and you know, issues of progressivism in American culture, he interprets as, as decadence or perversion uh, and sees that as another uh, you know, sort of specimen or, or example of American weakness and American uh, American decline. So it's important for us to understand how figures like Putin think. Mm-hmm. And if they believe the United States to be weak, that's a very important data point. You know, that, that matters because he's making decisions on that basis. Uh, and I suspect if he hadn't thought that the U.S. is weak, he would not have invaded Ukraine in February of, uh, of 2022. So that storyline matters to me. Absolutely. I don't want to be 
too simplistic in cheerleading for the White House or cheerleading for the US at the moment, uh, I would be happy to look at all the critical mistakes and, and things that the US hasn't done well uh, in the lead up to this war. And there, and there are lots of mistakes that have been made, but this is a pretty spectacular affirmation of American power, what we've seen in the last couple of weeks. Look at the coalition that has been assembled uh, against Russia. It's not just Europe, it's South Korea, it's Japan, it's Australia, it's Singapore, uh, New Zealand, uh, Canada, of course. I mean, it's a really formidable uh, coalition uh, that's working to provide arms to Ukraine and to sanction, uh, to sanction Russia. Uh, the way in which these sanctions are functioning uh, does show that the U.S. enjoys unique uh, forms of economic power and financial mm -hmm. power uh, in the world. And when the U.S. puts its mind to it, uh, it can really do a lot with that kind of power. So you see, I think, formidable diplomatic power, you see real economic power, and I'm not expert in these matters. The Ukrainian military, I think, is surviving and doing as well as they're doing because of American military assistance. That's technological assistance, that's intelligence sharing, that's, I think, covert action. I'm quite sure uh, that's the training that the U.S. has been providing the Ukrainian military for the last uh, eight years. And that may be the decisive factor in the war uh, writ large. Uh, it's the Ukrainians are doing the fighting, of course, but the U.S. support, I think, has been uh, absolutely uh, crucial. You know, take one step back. When does the US act effectively on the world stage? It acts effectively on the world stage when it combines its enormous economic and military powers with moral fervor. Mm -hmm. Did this incompletely in the first world war, it did it perfectly in the second world war, it did it unevenly in the cold war, and you see that combination once again. That's Putin's mistake in all of this. You don't wanna stoke these sort of moral uh, energies in the United States and have them get expressed in foreign policy because there's no force like it uh, in the world. And I just don't see decline etched into that story. I see almost the inverse. You see that the, you know, Biden has said since he was elected, America is back mm -hmm. in this crisis. I think that is a valid, that's a valid point. Yeah. And I, I think it's interesting because you said that you don't see the outcome of this being a transformed Russia, but I do think it's potential, our potential outcome is a transformed West or the, at least right. the United States. Definitely. You know, I think, um, no doubt, if what I said is true, and, and, and your, you know, really creative merging of those articles, what if US use, loses, what if it wins, uh, and the one that will come out Wednesday, I mean, it's, it's a transformed world in a, in a negative sense in many respects, a less safe and secure Europe, uh, an aggrieved Russia that has all of these instruments and tools of power that it will uh, certainly uh, use. Uh, that's not a pretty picture uh, by any means, but let's not kid ourselves about the 20th century. There wasn't much of a pretty picture throughout the 20th century either. I mean, you had Imperial Japan and it's, its havoc that it wreaked in the 1930s. You had Nazi Germany, you had fascist Italy. The Soviet Union was uh, much more menacing than Putin's Russia is throughout the 20th century. And you know, all of this was immensely difficult to deal with. So it's not that the US has ever had an easy time of it in terms of managing the world's crises and conflicts. It's just as it was, it's not the unusual decade of the 90s when everything was going so well. Now we're sort of back to the, the typical uh, the usual challenges and difficulties. And precisely as you suggest, I think there is the potential for uh, a much stronger Europe in this, a Germany that is now going to commit 2% of its GDP uh, to defense, which over time will make Germany a military superpower in its own right, if it can combine that effectively with the military of Britain, uh, the military of France. Uh, you know, you have already something very serious in Europe if the transatlantic alliance can endure, and I think it will. Uh, you know, that marries uh, substantial European power to, uh, to U.S. power. And then the final ingredient, 
which I think Biden is doing a decent job of, but I think other U.S. presidents could do better in this regard, the final ingredient is to tell the story. What's mm. the point of all of this power? Uh, what's the purpose? What's the power for the sake of what? Uh, and you have lots of good examples in the past, Reagan and John F. Kennedy, Truman, FDR, who could tell that story uh, on the international stage. And there, you know, democracy promotion has its proper place, not, you know, imposing it on the rest of the world, but this is what we stand for. You know, these mm -hmm. are the principles that we stand for, and we've got the power to make these principles credible on the international stage. We're not there at the moment, uh, but you kind of see these things moving into place, and I think it's possible that they will come together in a fairly productive way in the next couple of years. We can't really talk about security in Europe without talking about NATO. Um, so in January, before everything really kicked off, you said that it's time for NATO to close its doors and that the alliance is too big and too provocative for its own good. In light of recent events, do you still feel that way? Yes, with one uh, with one qualification. There's an issue I didn't take up in that article, uh, which I should have, um, and it's it's very much uh, uh, in the news at the present moment. And this is Sweden and Finland. Mm -hmm. So both of these countries feel, uh, you know, threatened by Russia by the by the new Russia uh, that's on evidence in the uh, in the war in Ukraine. Sweden has a small border with Russia. Finland has a huge border. Uh, with Russia. And for these countries, um, the open door is valuable in two respects. One is that they may choose to walk through the open door. Uh, and I suspect that they would be welcomed with open arms if they would make that choice. But the other point that I've learned since publishing the article is that it's sort of helpful for Finland to have the open door and not to walk through it. If they don't walk through it, it's understood to be a kind of courtesy to Russia. Uh, but it's useful to have the open door there <laughs> for this, for the sake of, 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 of being polite enough not to uh, not to go through it. I wasn't aware of that point uh, when I wrote the article, and I think it's a serious one, and, and uh, I should have taken that into account. On the other hand, I think to me, the argument of that article still holds up. Uh, you know, NATO worked really well in the 1940s when it was relatively small. It mm -hmm. was confined to Western Europe. It was about connecting the countries of Western Europe. It was about protecting them from Soviet invasion. It really was flawless. Uh, in, 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 in that regard. It was, a, it was a perfect idea, was perfectly executed. The problem with expanding NATO eastward uh, is not the guarantee that it gave to countries like Poland and, and the Baltic republics. That was, that was to the good. And I think we can all look with, uh, uh, with happiness to see that these countries are under the umbrella of NATO. And I hope and I, I trust that that will keep them free from uh, any kind of Russian invasion. But the problem is that NATO then became embroiled in this very uncertain terrain uh, where you have Belarus, you have Ukraine, you have Moldova uh, that are not in NATO. You have a Russia that's, you know, sort of moving westward in some ways. You have all kinds of national, uh, you know, sort of ethnic, ethnic religious tensions in this part of the world. It's very uncertain, very unsettled. And my strong conviction is that NATO is, 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 is only good. Uh, it's a great, great structure. It's a great idea, but it's not the solution to these problems. And even worse than that, it's not only is it not the solution, it's become a part of the sort of American dishonesty where we promise NATO membership for countries like Ukraine and Georgia, we don't mean it. We know that it will never happen. Uh, and you can see Zelensky's statements in the last couple of weeks where he's like, guys, just tell us what you really think about NATO because mm -hmm. it's just crazy to keep going back and forth and say that we can join, but we know that we can't join. So that to me seems, uh, you know, even forgetting about Russia, if one can with NATO, that just seems like a bad way to conduct business. So if we know that it's not going to expand, why not at a certain point just say it? Uh, it's not conceding to Putin and not conceding to Russia in my mind. It's sort of 
let's clarify what this alliance is. Uh, let's gain uh, the kind of good things that come with limits and with borders. Uh, and if we want to make a security commitment to Ukraine, if we feel so strongly about it, we can do it outside of NATO. Maybe there's another way that, uh, that we can resolve that, that, that problem. But NATO just seems to me like uh, an expanded NATO beyond where it is now just seems to me like a, like a, a non-answer uh, to some very uh, dangerous problems. So in that spirit, I would just close the door. Do you think that the, or how do you think that the conflict would have played out differently if NATO didn't exist? I don't think NATO is the prime mover of the uh, of the conflict between Russia uh, and Ukraine. It hasn't solved the problem. That's, mm -hmm. you know, I think uh, a very fair or statement. Or deterred. Or it hasn't deterred uh, Russia, certainly. And, and of course, uh, promising NATO membership for Ukraine in 2008, which, which NATO did, uh, and then not bringing into the alliance was in some ways the worst of all possible worlds because you you do on some level provoke Russia, but then you also don't provide Ukraine with any any real security guarantee. So that you know, I think that there's consensus that was not a great way to uh, to conduct business. But uh, you know, I think that NATO is in some respects, in terms of the current uh, conflict and even going back to 2014, is a bit of a distraction or, or or a lot of a distraction when it comes to Ukraine. It's obviously a Russian talking point. It's it's, it's part of the Russian narrative. Uh, but the issue for Russia, and Russia knows that Ukraine will never be a part of NATO. So a lot of this is kabuki theater of, of you know, narratives and, you know, who's done what and, and who has which grievances going back to an earlier part of our conversation about the need Putin has for, uh, for grievances. What bothers Putin about Ukraine is that there is a growing military relationship between Ukraine and the United States. And that has been the case since 2014. There's a growing relationship between Ukraine and NATO, not as a member, but NATO has some training exercises or did before the war started in the Western part of, uh, of Ukraine. And where, when Putin looks at Ukraine, what he sees is a country that's on the wrong path. Mm -hmm. It's a country that's a neighboring country. He thinks of it as his. He thinks the people are, you know, sort of um, de facto Russians. Uh, and he doesn't like this idea of them going over uh, in a westward direction primarily in military terms, but he doesn't like the economic deals that Ukraine has struck with the West. Uh, and he doesn't like the Western political influence that's made itself felt uh, in, uh, in Ukraine. So all of that is the real issue for Putin. You know, you could throw NATO out the window, you could remove NATO, and that would still be the real issue for Putin. And that was the motivation for him uh, to invade. So NATO is not the solution to the problem. It's not really the cause of the problem. It's there, it's one of the ingredients in the mix. We need to understand how it figures. Uh, in the Russian language of foreign policy, we need to understand how NATO relates to Ukraine. We need to understand how our own commitments to NATO uh, have been good and bad in this crisis, but it's a bit of a sideshow. So I will end this by asking you if there is any question about this conflict that I should have asked you that I didn't. I think that the, the question maybe that we might want to take up as a concluding question uh, is, you know, sort of where it goes with Russia itself, which is a very hard question to answer. We've, you know, I think, come up to this question and approached it a number of times in our conversation, but we haven't really dealt with it uh, head on. Uh, I think we are entering into territory and terrain uh, that is quite new uh, in this regard. When I look back on the Cold War as a historian of the Cold War, one of the things that startles me about the Cold War is that there were real periods of diplomatic cooperation between the United States and the Soviet Union. Not at the very beginning. Stalin was in charge. It wasn't really possible. Stalin dies in 1953. 
And then, you know, Eisenhower and Khrushchev really do conduct some very important business together. Uh, Brezhnev and Nixon do a lot, arms control. Uh, they have a lot of conversations. They were really friends uh, in a certain respect. Uh, Reagan and Gorbachev, of course, that's the most uh, productive relationship between an American leader uh, and a Soviet leader. You could say that they ended the Cold War peacefully because they were able to do diplomacy together. But at the same time that the Cold War diplomacy was going on between the Soviet Union and the US, there were all these proxy wars. So it's not like mm -hmm. we stopped the Vietnam War to do diplomacy with the Soviet Union. It's not like they stopped the Afghanistan War to do diplomacy with us. We, we mm -hmm. hit each other pretty hard and we were able to talk. And so for me, the fundamental question is, I don't think that we can get back to that place anytime soon. And I understand the outrage with Putin and you know, I see very limited prospects for anything resembling diplomacy with Putin. But for me, one of the core questions is, can we get back there at all with Russia? And I think that we need to on some level. I'm not talking about diminishing support to Ukraine for the sake of working with Russia. I'm not talking about altering NATO for the sake of a better relationship with Russia. I'm not talking about the US doing anything per se for the sake of a better relationship, but you don't have to do anything. You can still try to initiate that relationship. Can we do diplomacy on some level? Can these two nuclear powers work out some of the more basic issues? Can they communicate in such a way as to avert the worst case uh, scenarios? I still feel a moral responsibility on the part of the US to think in those terms. It's not like I have good suggestions or good policy ideas. Uh, and Putin may not feel any moral responsibility in that regard. It doesn't look like it. Uh, but still, uh, is there a way in which we can travel uh, in this relationship that will lead uh, to a less anarchic and chaotic relationship as of, of the kind that we have at the present moment? I don't have a recipe for getting there, uh, but I want to continue to think in those terms uh, and to make sure that we're asking that question at the same time that we ask all the necessary questions about how the war is going, uh, how we can help Ukraine, and how we can hopefully get this war to a uh, to a quick conclusion. All right. Well, with that, Michael, I will thank you for your time. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Hillary, for these great questions. You know, they're really, um, you know, really excellent. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's great to have this kind of uh, uh, this kind of conversation. I think you hit really the most important. It's like you hit the, all the tension points when you when it comes to this conversation, the hard things, the things that are hard to balance. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for coming on the show. It was really great talking to you. You too. Take care. All right, guys, that's it for me. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, subscribe, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. It might feel tedious, but it helps spread the word about the show. And it keeps you up to date when we have new episodes, so I really appreciate it. I'll be back with the new episode next week, but until then, stay safe. Bye, guys. Bye.